0: Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 214 of f-stop collaborate and listen This week's guest is a black and white landscape photographer from Minnesota Joel Chuckenbrode is someone most people have never heard of before and he likes it that way I was lucky enough to be introduced to his work through our former guest and great photographer in his own right Chuck Kimberly. Joel's photography is really something to behold. I highly encourage listeners to take a moment to visit his website as you listen. You won't be disappointed in what you find there. Joel and I cover a wide variety of topics this week, and I'm excited to dive right into the episode. Before we get rolling, I wanted to give listeners a heads up on a very special opportunity to support one of our former guests and my friend, Colleen Minnick. Colleen has just put together the finishing touches on a newly updated version of her highly popular Photographing Acadia National Park book. Colleen has put her heart and soul into this book, which is far more than a simple guidebook. Colleen has also infused heaps of practical tips for landscape photography, and it's a fantastic creative resource filled with inspiration. It's really no wonder this book has been such a huge success in the past. You can get your own copy by heading over to photographingacadia.com or by visiting the link in the show notes. Okay, let's get to the show. All right, Joel Trickenbro, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast, man.
1: Thanks for having me, Matt.
0: Yeah, I got to tell you I was um I mean, we're we're going to dive really deep into this, but you know, truth be told, I've never heard of you before until Friend of mine, Chuck Kimmerly, uh, sent me a link to your website, and I was absolutely flabbergasted by the quality of your work and the fact that I would never heard of you before. And so I am so excited to have our conversation.
1: Yeah, I definitely was um, surprised <laughs> when you uh, reached out. And thanks to Chuck for kind of uh, initiating that, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's no reason. I guess you would have heard of me. I've been laying low and pretty much been incognito for close to a decade now. So it's kind of uh, an interesting place to come from, but here we are.
0: Yeah, I think we'll we'll dive into that later. But uh, you know, first of all, th- thank you for also letting me do an article on your work on in the on Landscape Magazine. I thought that was really fun, and it was a great way for me to to get to know your work a little bit better and kind of have a little bit of an idea of kind of who you are and why you create the work you do. And I think sure. it's only going to help us with today's conversation.
1: Yeah, definitely. And thank you for taking the time to uh, go through it and dig in and write the piece that you did. That was very generous of you.
0: Oh man, no worries at all. So, you know, for basically everyone other than Chuck Kimmerly, um to, for <laughs> people, people that have never heard of you or your work, t- tell us a little bit about yourself and, you know, Sure. How? Yeah, let's just dive in.
1: All right. Well, my name is Joel Truckenbrode, as Matt said, and I am a black and white landscape photographer currently residing in the St. Paul area of Minnesota, the Twin Cities. And the majority of my work revolves around northeastern Minnesota, and that's where I spend most of my time photographically, kind of up to this date at least. And um, yeah, I guess I, I got into photography uh, I guess through a process of always kind of just making stuff. And I guess when I say that, I mean, even as a kid, I was into drawing. I would take my Lego sets and tear them down and rebuild things that were outside of the directions. And I, I just, I've always liked creating things. And photography was something that I actually stumbled upon in art school of all places. And I didn't find it through school, oddly enough. Uh, I went on a camping trip with a friend, and he encouraged me to bring a camera with, and I had no idea what I was doing with it. But it was kind of this strange combination of exploration and, I don't know, connection, I guess, with something outside of yourself that I found really compelling, and I was just kind of hooked right away. And I was doing painting at the time where I was stuck in a studio. Which is cool. I mean, I definitely enjoyed that time and learned a lot from that process as well. But something about going out into the larger world and sort of in this symbiotic situation, sort of extracting images and creating out of that was really interesting, I thought. And uh, that's kind of what I ended up pursuing once I got out of school. And yeah, um, other than that, I, I'm not a full-time photographer. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I actually don't generate any income off my photography and I don't try to intentionally. I guess we can get into that maybe more later. Absolutely. and yeah, Not that is. there's some weird judgment or anything weird attached to that, but just hasn't been the goal up to this point. And um, I guess uh, I work in a kind of a design slash drafting job here in the twin cities. You know, it's, I wouldn't call it a creative profession. It's only related in the sense that I'm using graphic design tools to to do my work, I guess. So there is there is a link there, but it's, uh, it's disconnected, I guess. But uh, yeah, beyond that, um, I guess we can break and, out from there.
0: Yeah. And so you've been shooting for about 15 years and
1: mm-hmm.
0: t- 10 of those years have been pretty much primarily in black and white.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I started out shooting. Well, I started out doing some black and white. I did end up taking, uh, through that initial camping experience, I took some photography classes when I was in college, did some black and white darkroom work at that point. And, um, but then transitioned over very quickly to color. And kind of the first five or so years of shooting really were all in color and was pretty heavily influenced by Elliot Porter. Um, a local photographer to me named Craig Blacklock, uh, amongst some other people. Um, also, I was on NPN back at that time. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> that was yeah, kind yeah, of totally. the uh, the glory days. The I, glory you know, days, that's right. I don't right. know about the glory days, but uh, it was an interesting time. It was kind of the time that uh, Mark Adamus was kind of coming into the scene. He actually, I believe, was switching over from film to digital at that point, got a 5D and... Things changed, and uh, but it was interesting. I mean, it was uh, an intimidating time to mm. post in the landscape forum. On that I... forum at that point, and um, a lot of really top-notch photographers were were there. So I generally was kind of stuck more in the regional forums, observing what people were doing. But uh, yeah, pretty interesting. And but then, like you like you mentioned, uh, about five years in, kind of hit a point where. And I don't know what caused it, I guess entirely, but I felt that uh it was time to do something different, and yes, switched over to black and white,
0: so I mean, I was gonna save this for later, but I would be really curious as to what was it about black and white that that drew you in? You know why have you chosen to choose it over using color
1: yeah that's uh it's always difficult to articulate completely, yeah, you know there's there's always the typical answer of well, it's more abstract, and I can push it further, and I can bend it. Totally. You know, so it's more interpretive, right? And that certainly is a a point that attracted me. Um, But, you know, I I think there was also just a completely different aesthetic that was kind of waiting there. And there weren't really many people in my region um, who were working in black and white, so I felt like there was maybe an opportunity there in terms of Exploring a different vein photographically, uh, the landscape that other people weren't doing. So that was a factor. And I guess to be completely honest, one thing that black and white does, (laughs) for better or for worse, is it it allows you to completely dodge that questioning and that issue of manipulation that's so heavily tied to color photography, even to this day. Uh, You know, I hear it even uh, in other conversations you have with photographers. This issue of manipulation coming up, and you just don't get that question in black and white, really, because it's not real, right? It's immediately separated out from reality. Yeah, that's interesting. That and I, I, I like that's true. So you know, maybe that's just due to me not being clever enough to uh, <laughs> figure out color in that regard. But but no, it was a way to work in a more interpretive domain without some of the baggage that I think is attached to color. If that makes yeah, sense.
0: that's interesting. It's um, it's like people are immediately detached from reality from the very beginning. And so therefore it kind of, I don't know, alleviates that entire thought process altogether and then lets people focus on the art only.
1: Well, that's the hope at least, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I've never actually thought about it that way before. That's
1: actually quite interesting. Yeah. So, so yeah, I guess it was uh, those factors and you know, I, I guess I always uh, was really inspired, too, by a lot of the classic West, fo- West Coast photographers, um, you know, obviously Ansel Adams, which everybody knows, and but also some of the newer ones, Bruce Barnbaum, uh, mm-hmm. John Sexton. Uh, actually, a major kind of instigator for me to delve into Black and White was finding John Sexton's work and realizing that Black and White landscape isn't necessarily relegated to the grand landscape or the the dramatic vista, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. It can be very intimate, very quiet. Mm -hmm. And that resonated with me coming from a place that isn't particularly dramatic, isn't probably what I would describe as being classically beautiful in a lot of ways. Minnesota just isn't that sort of... (laughs) uh, It's not Yosemite Valley, right? Right.
0: Land, land of a thousand land of a thousand lakes and you you will never see all of them at one time definitely not <laughs> yeah yeah no it's interesting i um i one of my fondest memories actually was uh, a week long canoe trip in the boundary waters and i can i can totally see why you would be drawn to that style of photography in that environment just because i think you know it it what it suffers from in terms of a lack of grand vista you have many more opportunities for more intimate scenes that are more personally connective, I think.
1: Yeah. And it's really really kind of too bad that, in my opinion, that landscape photography has become so heavily associated with icons and sort of these easy, large scenes that people can duplicate. I, I get it. It's a democratized art form. And that's a blessing and a curse, right? But there's definitely, you know, opportunities to create landscape photographs virtually anywhere. Uh, you know, you talked about Chuck Kimmerly. Well, you can look at his work in North Dakota. I mean, how much work do you see coming out of North Dakota that qualifies as being landscape photography? Very little. Yeah. Um, not that there's none, but it, it's, it's few and far between. hmm so, so yeah, I guess I just out of curiosity as a resident of Colorado, how did you end up in northern Minnesota on a Boundary Waters trip?
0: <laughs> Back after right after high school, um my group of high school friends and I stayed really close and every summer we would try to do some kind of trip together. So, one year we went to the Boundary Waters for a week, another year we did like a camping trip up into Idaho. Um, another, another year we did a, a really long trip into Ireland, oh, wow. um, which was really cool. Another year yeah. that I didn't get to go, we did a trip up to, they did a trip up to Glacier National Park, which I'm super upset that I didn't do that
1: one. But <laughs> yeah, That's too bad.
0: But yeah, it was, um you know, a lot of it was based on where people lived. So like, one of my, one of our friends, he lived in Idaho. Another friend lived in Madison, Wisconsin, and then our other friend, he lived in um, Dublin, Ireland. So sure, it, sure. So it just was like, okay, let's do these trips and reconnect once a year. So it was yeah, that fun. makes
1: sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's uh, it's interesting. I mean, I guess for those listeners that you have who aren't familiar with it, uh, the Boundary Waters is referring to the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness, which is approximately a, a million acre. Uh, Designated wilderness area in the northern edge of Minnesota along the Canadian border, and I don't remember how many lakes there are in a total. It's over a thousand, I believe. Full of streams, rivers, and typically a trip into the boundary waters involves you packing all of your gear with you, sort of like a backpacking trip, but you go by canoe. And in between each lake, there are portages, and you unload your canoe and carry this stuff over between lake to lake, or to a river or whatever the next waterway is going to be. And you kind of navigate this wilderness area via waterways with occasional huffing and puffing with heavy gear. <laughs> so it's amazing. It's kind of it's a an unique an, experience. Yeah.
0: It's an incredible experience. I think it's totally underrated too.
1: Yeah. I don't know. It's, uh, there's, you know, there's no shortage of people going in there, especially with the sure. pandemic. And, um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I, don't know how it was by you, uh, we had just a flood of people oh, kind yeah. of moving into the backcountry uh, over the course of the pandemic as they sought to find some uh, respite, I suppose, from the situation at hand and to get yeah. out, but kind of overran everything, honestly.
0: Yeah, we, we had the same problem here. I think it was pretty much universal over all over the world. Yeah. I've, I've heard this story over and over again. Yeah.
1: Right. Did you have issues with people damaging things in Colorado and oh, yeah, causing man, trouble? Just
0: just yeah it got pretty crazy here (laughs) yeah
1: same same it's too bad
0: yeah it is um
1: it's not too bad that people are getting out but the fact that they would be damaging things littering uh basically you know just treating the environment with disrespect obviously not ideal but it's not ideal
0: totally get all that what i want to go back to uh photography talk a little bit so you know one one thing that I was really curious about from your background and kind of just where you're at in your photography in general and the way you see photography and yeah. your your broad experience in the in the art form itself, you may not feel that way, but you know you've been shooting since the m p n days, so that's a long time. I'm curious what your thoughts are on what differentiates landscape photography as an art form versus other
1: types of art? well. I guess to the first point you made, it it doesn't feel like a long time that I've been in it. 15 years, you know, it's like, and especially changing aesthetics kind of in the middle of that, a lot of that time really is getting up to speed and self-development. And I'm really only now getting to a point where I feel like the work is developed adequately to show people and it's a foundation and a starting point, if that makes sense, which maybe seems odd at 15 years to be saying that, but that's the truth. And um, as far as what differentiates landscape photography from other art forms, you know, I don't know that it universally is differentiated. And obviously, there are ways that it is and ways that it isn't. It's it's still, in a sense, you know, composition is composition. And Mm -hmm. use of a frame is use of a frame, whether that's painting and somebody inventing it, or you making a photograph. But ultimately, to me, it's really about the connection to the real, to reality, and that experience of being human and being out in a place. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, as a species, we were out in the landscape for a living, essentially, as hunter-gatherers for millennia. Yeah, And I think there's something really deep there. And I think we naturally, as photographers, kind of respond somehow in that vein. Maybe I'm overly romanticizing that, and maybe that's a little bit trite. I don't know. But I guess I feel like that connection to reality, to places that actually exist, to scenes that actually could be experienced, um, that's what differentiates it to me.
0: Yeah. No, me too. And it's interesting you brought up, you know, composition is composition. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's what is probably somewhat appealing to people that are painters is that. I can basically create this composition out of nothing and choose where I put what in the, in, on my canvas. Sure. And I think that's one of the interesting limitations of photography is that we actually have to frame that up in the camera ourselves. So it's, it's taking what you can actually literally find and creating a composition in nature, which is full of chaos. And I, for me, I find that challenge and that constraint to be incredibly interesting
1: yeah I, I actually find it to literally be addictive to have to seek out these things and, and and work with what you have so to speak yeah you know the thing is you say that it's a limitation of photography it really isn't at this point though right because with Photoshop with digital manipulation with the advent of increasingly advanced AI, these things are becoming less of limitations, which you know is a topic you end up broaching quite a bit. I found within your podcast, even kind of this tension between the manipulated or created image versus uh, maybe if we want to call it the straight image, which I would take some uh, some exception to <laughs> the sure. use of that term because you know even with my own work, uh, I don't work entirely in kind of a completely stereotypical straight fashion, but. I don't invent content or invent um the scene so to speak. I work mm-hmm. within it in maybe a looser fashion than people realize, but but yeah, it's uh it's kind of an interesting turning point I think that we're at and I think some of the topic that you end up bringing up oftentimes it's clear to me that we just don't have very good language to communicate where these lines are and how they differentiate from one from another and how do you kind of parse that out? That's it's just tricky ground. And mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not like I, I've never got the sense that you or any of your other guests have been like, no, you can't do that, or no, you shouldn't, or somehow that's morally reprehensible that you're creating right. images versus uh representing reality. But there is a tension there, and I I'm not sure how to sort that out entirely, but it's kind of yeah. an interesting place to find ourselves at.
0: It is. I think it's it's hard for me to live in the same space. You know, it's like if you're going to call something a photograph as an mm-hmm. as a piece of art, that kind of implies something in terms of it being based in what you found um, versus if it's a painting or a digital creation, it's it implies something else. And not saying one is better than the other, but I'm curious. You know, as someone who's uh, done painting, yeah, you know, I I think it's interesting that you know in the painting world they actually do have very clear delineators in that art form in terms of style. Like, you know, you have your impressionists and you have your abstract and you have this and you have that.
1: Well, I um, mean, keep in mind though, that those labels are retrospective labels, right? Like they're they're created by people within the contemporary world who are labeling movements or describing things in the past mm-hmm. where we can group them together and kind of silo ideas. But when people were You know, talk about, like, say that we're looking at Impressionist images or something. These were emergent paintings at some point. There was no label to describe them when they were being made. I mean, Sure. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, Van Gogh, people thought it was crap. Well, not entirely, but, you know, he wasn't successful in his time, and now he's revered. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a certain degree of, in retrospect, uh, applied to all of this. And I think contemporary art, which... Tends to be, you know, postmodern. I guess we could say it's really conceptual more than anything. And there's a lot less uh, credence paid to specific sort of aesthetic ties. And people actually want to play with those things and bring together disparate elements, oftentimes, um, either to create a statement or uh, maybe to shock you, make you think, Mm -hmm. make you question things. Uh, So. I see less of that happening in landscape photography. Uh, we're, we tend to be a very <laughs> very conservative uh, demogra- or democratic group of people. Um, and one thing I love about landscape photography actually is most of the practitioners are not people that come from the traditional art world, right? Sure. Which is probably part of the reason it's looked down upon maybe. like We don't have a an extremely strong sort of conceptual framework that ties all this stuff together,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and kind of that lack of uh, lack of concept, maybe, and the idea that Ansel Adams has already happened—what else is there to say? Um, doesn't bode well in our favor, I guess, within that crowd at the moment. But I really like the fact that it's it's people who come from all walks of life and from all occupations, and they're just regular people. And they want to get out there and experience the world and be part of something larger. And I, th- I think that's a wonderful thing. It's not something we should uh, <laughs> we should think poorly of entirely. So
0: no, I I, I agree hundred uh, percent for sure. And I I really appreciate the way that you you framed that because it I think it opens the door for people to kind of think about their own perspectives and how they view other people's work or different styles of landscape photography that maybe they're not necessarily interested in
1: themselves. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah.
0: And I like the fact that you brought up that it's retrospective because, you know, if you think about the history of landscape photography, it's, it's a fairly young art form, you know, it's It's, it's very young. So, I mean, in 300
1: years, who knows
0: what people will be saying about any of the stuff we're doing now.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's, um, It's fun to think about, uh probably largely fruitless. <laughs> <For> <laughs> to, really, sure. to really think where it's going to be headed and who who if anybody is going to be remem- remembered, I guess, but uh that's certainly not the mindset that I I operate in out in the field. I'm sure you don't either, but No. <laughs> it, it is it is kind of fun. It's fun to think about though. Yeah, yeah no doubt.
0: Well, cool. so Let's dive into kind of something on a more personal level, and it, I'm going to kind of just open the door with a very simple question, but I think it's going to lead us into some interesting conversations. So it's quite simple. Uh, why, do, why do you make photographs?
1: I guess the simple answer back at you would be, I feel like I have to. I'm, I'm compelled to make things, and photography is the medium that I've chosen to, to make things within. and. It's important to me just as a human being and as somebody who enjoys creating things to actually go out and create. And uh, I guess, like I kind of alluded to already, I mean, I guess I ended up sort of choosing landscape photography as that pursuit uh, or kind of that vein of that pursuit, I guess, as just as something that can uh, bring me to places and provide experiences that I don't think I would otherwise have. And to experience the world, and to be part of something, and to connect. And I know that can maybe sound romanticized or whatnot, but I really think it's true. And it's—I'm sure almost any of the landscape photographers you've had on could tell you about specific experiences that they've had out in the landscape. I'm sure you've had them. You climbed all these mountains. You can't even describe that to people, right? Like it's—it's it's beyond it, and it's beyond. A photograph right mm-hmm. um, so why landscape photography really because it's just such a rich well of experience I think and it's just bottomless too I mean you can just keep going and going and going and there's always more and I, I think that's really amazing
0: yeah I totally agree And you know I get the sense in and looking at your work but then also through um, our email conversations that photography for you is more than just the end product that it's part of the process. And, and I think one of the things that we had kind of touched on a little bit over email was that it, and it it occurred to me that, uh, you know, landscape photography in some ways helps you process both positive and negative emotions um, or maybe different things that are going on in your life or whatever. And I'm curious what does that look like and how do you do that?
1: <laughs> that's the uh, that's the million-dollar question, right? Yeah. Um, how do you do that? Uh, that is that is tricky. I guess for me, it's not something that's conscious, right? It's not like I wake up and I have a checklist and I go out there and I do this, <laughs> this, this, and then whatever I'm feeling and within that moment uh, somehow is transcripted in a photograph. I, that isn't the case. I think it's really just about being open and being honest with yourself and your your emotions and what's going on in your life. And yeah, I mean, life isn't all, you know, it's not all double rainbows, right? Like there's, there's struggle in life, there's hardship, but there's tremendous beauty as well. And I think that tension and that coupling of the two is kind of what attracts me to working in black and white, working with, uh, even within the landscape. It's not... Not all of the landscape is beautiful in the easiest sense of the world. Word, it's not. It's not pretty all the time. There's a harshness to it, perhaps. And uh, you know, I, I like the metaphorical qualities of that. I, I think that's interesting. And but then tying that together, and kind of like I say, that tension between between hope and and suffering and pain and unbelievable beauty and transcendence. Uh, I don't know. I just I think that's just part of living and uh, part of uh, being a human walking the earth, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm curious when you look at your work, um, you know, historically, um, and you look at different images, are you able to kind of recollect the emotional response that you're having in the field or, and, or are you able to kind of say, oh, that looks like this because I was feeling like that? Or is it more subconscious?
1: Hmm. I, I, I guess I think that there are occasional images that are maybe maybe as direct as you've kind of described, mm-hmm. where, <laughs> where there was something specific within that moment that ended up kind of wrangling this image out of you. Mm-hmm. And, but most of them aren't like that, I would say, at least for me. Um, sure. I'd say maybe a handful that are really that direct, but most are not. Uh, most are more generalized and, like I say, more about being present and just responding and trying to be honest, uh, whatever that means. Uh, what would you say for yourself? I mean, you you have a fairly large body of work at this point, I would imagine. Some of them have direct sort of ties to specific moments in life. but
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I think for myself, probably a good 80% of it, 90% of it is more... When I look back on it and I look to see kind of how it was composed or how I processed it, um, I can make a direct tie to something I was trying to process or um, express uh, through the image. Sure. But most often, it sounds like you and I are very similar in this way. My process is more about kind of being there in nature and, you know, slowing down and experiencing what's all around me with all five senses. And then, and then reacting and responding to that with the camera and, and then hopefully through lots of practice and, and the way that you see the world and the way that you've kind of, um, grown as a photographer, that interpretation actually turns into something that's interesting.
1: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. It's amazing to me that people can sense any emotion out of it, quite frankly. Yeah. that, That always surprises me a little bit and, but people do, and I guess that's, uh, that's a nice thing, and it's also it's also kind of a vulnerable thing too. Um, yeah, because sometimes you get called out, <laughs> you know. But uh, but yeah, I, I think it's really interesting and really enjoyable.
0: So, how do you make yourself more open to emotional response
1: in a place? Ooh, geez, I don't know. Um, I've been working on it, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, honestly, I feel like. Part of the past decade for me has just been working on myself as a person Hmm. and Mm -hmm. trying to become uh, more self-aware and not in a sort of pretentious manner, but just being aware of who you are, kind of how you operate, what you maybe need to work on, what your strengths and weaknesses are, things you have to work through. And I I just think through that journey, uh, I always hate that word journey, but um, through that process, through that walk, that some of that just naturally reveals itself. Maybe, um, I, I don't feel like it's straightforward and I wish I had an easier answer for you, but.
0: No, it's interesting. I, I feel like, you know, photography as a practice, um, and you know, the, the, the act of practicing and improving over a long period of time and then, you know being self-aware of what some of your own personal limitations are in your work or, you know, how maybe your work is could have been better when you look back on it or how you would make it better in the future. I I find that, that constant process of, of process improvement of, of one's own self is kind of an interesting vehicle, um, by which you can attach all kinds of things that you're trying to work on, on your, on yourself.
1: Yeah. It's, uh, I, I, I don't know, I guess I, I don't want to put too much emphasis on that the photography equals <laughs> sort of who you are completely as a person, but the two are linked. And, um, I guess what I would say with a degree of certainty is the photographs that I make today are not the same photographs I would have made 10 years ago. Right. And I can see that I, I can see just looking at them that that's true. Mm-hmm. So that, uh, I don't know what that says, <laughs> but just an observation.
0: No, I know it's um it's interesting, right? Because when I look at I, when I when I go through the same practice for my own work, it's you know there are things that I wish I was still doing more of that I've kind of abandoned in some sure. ways. Yeah, but there are other things where I'm like, oh, that's an interesting approach. I should do more of. Um, yeah. So and it, sometimes
1: you go back and you see something that you did, you know a decade ago or something and you're like, "Oh, that was actually a really good idea. Why why didn't I develop that further?" But yeah. Sometimes it takes time for you to to see that though, and that's that's uh not a bad thing. Yeah.
0: Yeah, 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 definitely. Well, so you had spoken to this a little bit earlier, but I'm curious for you, um how do you find beauty in the non-iconic? Um you know, that's a uh, I think One thing you and I share is that one aspect of, you know, the current trends of what's popular in photography is that, you know, we have these iconic scenes that kind of creates this self-perpetuating loop of, of, you know, derivative images that kind of, I don't know, for me, when I see the same image over and over again, I just get bored. Um, But I'm curious for your own personal work, how do you find beauty in in
1: the scenes that aren't necessarily obvious and iconic? Well, I I guess we can dive into this and we can put a pin in this for later, but I'm not entirely sure that there is more, I'm I'm sure numerically there's more iconic photography going on simply because there are more photographers out there. Right. And there are more people uh, practicing landscape photography and making those images and, the more democratic something becomes, I think the more low, the low hanging fruit is going to attract them. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have peop- more people doing it. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel like the number of people who are serious about landscape photography, serious quote unquote, um, that number is very large too. And those people as a whole are not making these types of images. I mean, the people that you have on your podcast, they're beyond that point in their life <laughs> for the most part, from what I've seen generally. And, uh, you know, they're good artists, right? Uh, And they've moved beyond it and figured it out. So as far as non-iconic images, uh, working in a quieter place, I I guess, like I said earlier, there's just so much out there and there's so much opportunity and there's so many things to photograph and there's so many beautiful places. Why won't you uh, take the risk and photograph what compels you rather than what is given to you on a spoon Um, i i guess i just don't find it to be that problematic and despite the number of amazing sort of iconic locations like i've recently the past couple years have gone to death valley in the winter um Mm -hmm. just partially because it's warm and it's a place i can go right but it's also and and you're not in minnesota (laughs) indeed (laughs) 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 indeed but uh you know, it's also profoundly beautiful, and uh, it just captures the imagination. But it's an iconic location. But there are also almost countless non-iconic, non-iconic images to be found there, too. Sure. Despite the, you know, horde of photographers that descend on that location. Um, but there are all these unspoken, unsung places as well. And I guess for me, I really even though it maybe seemed like a bit of a curse initially to be somebody who is interested in landscape photography and be living in Minnesota. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's not exactly a a global hotspot. People don't typically fly in there from around the world to make photographs, but within that, you know, it has its own opportunity and the place itself is of no less value. In my opinion, it's of tremendous value. It's extremely beautiful in its own way, but, uh, I think the fact that it isn't iconic gives you the license in a way. And in a sense, was almost forced on me. Like I just didn't when I got out of college, I didn't have the money to be traveling to Glacier or Mm -hmm. going to Yosemite. You know, it just wasn't in the cards. So in a sense, being forced to work in a place that you have to really just grind it out and figure it out and find out where these images are. And, you know, they're hidden everywhere. So how do you figure that out? I, I don't know. You just go out there and you start working and you respond, right? And they they come to you and it makes sense and it all just kind of clicks over time and you kind of figure it out. But um, I guess I found it to be kind of a privilege actually to not start in a place that kind of had that burden in a way because that has kind of its own trappings that you have to get over. And you know, I've heard in a n- numerous podcast guests that you've had have to have to talk about. Well, I had to. I had to get my, the icons off my list and once i did that then i was free <laughs> well i just i didn't have to do that and for better or for worse and i i think everyone figures it out on their own
0: yeah and it's a personal decision and choice too i mean there's if that's something you highly enjoy there's nothing wrong with that
1: right no no i wrong I, wrong wouldn't be the right word um i guess i view it more that it's you're just saying the exact same thing that everybody else has already said over and over again. So kind of what's the point? Um, you know, there are, even within Minnesota, to be fair, there are locations that I would call local icons as well, um, whether that's photographing a specific lighthouse on Lake Superior or a specific cliff face. or I mean, there's, there are places that people go and create the same image. That happens here, too. Mm-hmm. And you probably won't be as familiar with them, but there still is kind of that mentality. And, um, some people get over it and move beyond it. Some people don't. And I guess that's just how it goes. But
0: I think something you said earlier help helps kind of explain that a little bit. And I, at the risk of sounding like a jerk, I'm going to kind of bring it to light, but go for it, Matt. Yes. Uh, I think sometimes we've, falsely assume that people want to say something with their photography. I think, you know, some people just enjoy taking their camera to super beautiful places that they've seen in a magazine or on Instagram and they want to get their own photo of it and they love it. And and they're not trying to use photography as a way of personally expressing themselves or as a vehicle for you know, artistic expression or whatever. It's just, uh, they're just like taking those types of images. And I think often, I think that's where this, this disconnect happens for some of us. It's, you know, there's, if we're talking, we're almost talking about two totally different exercises.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I, I think that's, that's probably true. And I guess we have to acknowledge that People have different motivations, right? And yeah, especially if you're tied in with social media, I'm sure if that reward structure and those sort of selective pressures that are baked into <laughs> into those platforms are compelling to you, then I, I, I'm sure creating a mind-boggling epic photo of an iconic location is probably you know ideal for you. But unto each their own. That's, yeah, that's cool. There's room for everybody to do whatever they want. That's that's the truth. This is
0: true. I'm always just a little bit flabbergasted though when I see people with huge social media followings presenting, you know, their version of something that we've already seen before.
1: That's yeah. it's just interesting. Yeah, I uh, I guess as you're aware, I'm not plugged in to say yeah. That. Yeah. um
0: I think. Well, let's talk about that. A, uh, let's sure, talk about I, that. I think that actually has gives you a, a tremendous advantage in some ways.
1: Well, it's an advantage and a disadvantage, right? It's a it's a double edged sword. So I think I think what it really comes down to is figuring out what your objectives are um, as a photographer, and then leveraging those platforms as you see fit, and if you see fit. Sure. uh If you're if you're a photographer who's in the business of photography. I think it's really tough to avoid them. And I begrudge no one <laughs> for, for having a social media account or posting regularly. You know, do whatever you got to do. It's a competitive, difficult way to make a living, I think. And hats off to anybody who can, because uh, it seems not the easiest road. I've known other people who have tried, and I know some who have made it and some who haven't. And uh, I uh, definitely don't hold it against anybody for having them. So that being said... I, I do think it just, I, I don't know how you look at it. I, I just think you need to be conscientious about what you're doing and why, the reasons why. Um, I was listening to another photographer recently, and I, I'm not going to lay out any names. I don't mean this in a, uh, as a pejorative or something, but they were talking about how the pandemic had quote-unquote changed landscape photography. And, as I listened to it, it became quickly apparent what they really were saying is how the pandemic changed the business of landscape photography, and I know that's maybe a semantic nitpick, but I thought it was interesting that landscape photography equals business, and that the two were coupled together and um that isn't necessary that to me that isn't true. like they're a separate thing. there's business and then there's photography, but right it's, a, it's being it's discussed like a is there Venn
0: diagram.
1: Yeah, yeah. And they were connected. So just kind of interesting. But if you think of photography in those terms, um, the use of social media, I think, becomes increasingly important. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to be able to share your images or get some sort of positive feedback. I, I guess the danger is you have a feedback mechanism that's going to select for a very specific sort of thing. And if you're okay with creating that thing and you want to do it and get that reward. Get the get the cheap dopamine, <laughs> then by all means have at it. But uh, that isn't for everyone, and I guess it, it isn't for me. So mm-hmm. where do you kind of fall on it currently?
0: Oh man, I struggle with social media a lot because you know I think the the question to ask yourself um, when faced with this topic is: if I didn't have a business or any other reason to post on social media, would I still post my photos there? Right. Sure. And when I ask myself that question. I, I I hesitate and at first I'm like oh no I wouldn't do it but then I'm like well yeah I would because like I want my friends who are photographers who like we have a lot of fun around the campfires with I want them to see them and yeah. you know tell me what they think about them and you know I think in some ways that's a really excellent way of getting you know feedback on what you're up to and you know depending on your friends and who
1: you select as your friends and things of that nature but yeah i totally you know, get get the friend thing and one of the advantages even like i'd mentioned npn back in the day before it kind of got revamped and everything yeah one of the advantages to being on npn was i met people through npn in real life and you became friends with them right and you have relationships with people and that's a good thing that's a really good thing um and social media i'm sure is an extension of that right there are it it brings people together you know in a way that can create those meaningful bonds which is a good thing and something to be celebrated um to me that i I guess maybe where i differ from you is i place virtually zero weight (laughs) on the uh on the feedback mechanism and that's probably one of the weirder aspects of kind of my practice is i just don't really care (laughs) I I have kind of had to divorce myself from getting feedback, oddly enough. And uh, when I transitioned from color to black and white, I kind of went through a period where I was still kind of connected online, but eventually I just completely shut everything down. And I felt that I needed to figure that out for myself. And I kind of went into a period of kind of a self-assigned apprenticeship, if you will. And other than maybe a few people, who saw things over the course of years, you know, there was virtually zero feedback, none. And you kind of have to learn to trust yourself in that capacity and to give yourself license to make the call on what you think is successful and what isn't. Mm -hmm. And I don't, you know, that's not for everyone. I don't, I don't think everybody should do that necessarily, but it can be done. And, uh, for probably certain personality types, um, it's an option. And uh, I guess I felt it was actually beneficial, oddly yeah. enough.
0: Yeah. How, how did that work? because <laughs> <It's> <I'm, laughs> cause like, um, for me when I, you know, so often with my work, I get really excited. I'll, I'll process it. And I think it looks great. And then I'll show it to a friend of mine or us, you know, a few people and they're like, yeah, man, like this is good. That's good. But look at this. And they're like, and then I'm like, Oh, you're right. That's totally I just totally missed missed that. So, it seems like without that feedback loop of some kind, you I don't know, like it I feel like there's less opportunity for growth, but I really want to hear about your process for doing that.
1: Yeah, it's kind of one of those things. It's it's hard to quantify, right? Um, yeah. The and when you had Cole Thompson on, I guess he talked about this within the realm of photographic celibacy, and I'm not quite as extreme as him, but sure. kind of the idea being that it, you have it within you to figure it out. And maybe that, like you say, that probably just isn't exactly the right path for everybody, which is 100% fine. But I, I like I said, I guess for me, I felt it was doable. And part of that, I suppose, is just being absolutely brutal to your own work. <laughs> And, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, just not not in the sense of uh, trying to tear yourself down, but it's like no mercy, right? If something is technically wrong, it's technically wrong, and call it out for what it is. Um, but part of that too, I I think like if I would have started right out of the gate that way, it wouldn't have worked because I needed a certain amount of technical sort of threshold to pull from. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, you don't want to be in a position where you're making dumb technical mistakes at that point because really you're what you're more concerned about in my opinion is you're trying to develop an aesthetic uh a vision as some people would say and that development is kind of more what i'm getting at the technical things it it is helpful like you're saying especially when you're starting to have people point something out you know you know, you miss this, or you over sharpen this, and there's a halo here, or you did this, this, and this, and it's jacked up. (laughs) So, I mean, there's infinite ways to kind of technically ruin a photograph. But once you get beyond that point, that's kind of when the real work starts. Once you aren't thinking about your camera, and you aren't thinking about settings, and you aren't thinking about buttons and nonsense, and you're just thinking about the image and how to execute, that's where the nuts and bolts actually are, I think. And that's kind of more what I needed. It wasn't, you know, I was working with large format uh, color transparencies prior to switching, which is about the most uh, unforgiving medium <laughs> on the planet. I mean, you're off by half a stop on your exposure and, you know, you may have a, a ruined image, um, you know, blocked up shadows or you have a clipped highlight that you're never ever going to recover because you have, you know, a tiny little window of exposure. Latitude. Right, like
0: five Stops of dynamic range.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, you have people that continue to do that successfully. Uh, you have like Ben Horn or somebody who is sure. still using those tools and going out there and every year making a whole new group of portfolio images and it's totally doable, right? But yeah, um, but yeah it's. Uh, I think I needed to deal with that first. And then once I had that under the belt, then you can move on to... <laughs> <laughs> to really more of maybe the uh, developmental sort of thing that I'm kind of getting at, if that makes sense. So, mm-hmm.
0: Well, no, it's interesting too, because you work in black and white. So I feel like, you know, you've removed one of the probably most, I don't want to say like challenging, but the, maybe something a lot of people struggle with is our color work. You know, it's trying to get, get it just right and not oversaturate and things like that. But when you're working with black and white, you're really more focused on like tonality and you know you know your shadows and your whites and your blacks, and there's less
1: emphasis on
0: the accuracy of color ranges and things like that, so yeah that,
1: that must be helpful well, it's different uh, i don't I don't know that it's easier in some ways I think color yeah, is I wasn't
0: more... implying it was easier, I was just saying yeah yeah,
1: yeah. I guess what I would say is that anything done at an extremely high level, it's probably hard sure you know, yeah. yeah 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 i mean there's people out there you know whether that's somebody like guy tell who's making these really expressive color images and it looks effortless right that doesn't just happen immediately with you walking out with the camera and you just press a button and put it in photomatics or something right it, <laughs> there's more involved Oh, those so, are the days. yeah right um blast from the past Whew. but uh I I feel like black and white, it's just a different set of challenges, and uh, there's a certain freedom to that. But then there's also a whole different set of limitations and things that you can't do and you can't get away with anymore. Right. I mean, I don't know if you've ever tried it, but if you converted all your color images to black and white, how many of them actually work? You know, it's like...
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it's... I mean if I've that tried makes sense. it's I mean, not a,
1: a knock against color or your images. It's just they're structured differently somehow. Completely and the way you yeah. think about them is different. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: so you know it's a it's a different learning curve and a different set of possibilities. I mean that maybe that's a more positive way of saying it. Mm-hmm. Like you have a whole different set of things you can get away with and you can do that you couldn't get away with before, but you have to then learn what those are <laughs> and uh then start taking advantage of them. So
0: Yeah, it's almost like um color in some ways is a crutch that you have to get rid of, but then it means like you don't have to worry about that anymore, but it means you have to be that much better at all of the other things, like including composition and and
1: shapes and and patterns and well, there's um, that stuff, but I mean there's things that are as kind of banal as just working with tones in a way that makes them compelling and typically sure. when they come out of the camera they aren't right <laughs> you got to figure that out too so I, I don't know i i really enjoyed color and uh you know um have no regrets about the time that i spent doing it i actually did a small project in color uh prior to switching and it was really a great experience so you know it's uh just a different road
0: well we touched on it earlier, but I, I really wanted to take a little bit of a deeper dive into this topic of kind of business and and selling your work. And mm-hmm. so I guess the first question I would have for you is, you know, specifically, why have you chosen not to sell your work?
1: Well, it's always tricky. And I end up having this conversation with uh, friends, family, <laughs> and uh Typically, they wonder what my issue is, why why I don't or why I haven't. Um, so I guess, you know, I guess it's flattering in the sense that people would deem it worthy of being sold. So that's cool. But uh, kind of how I've looked at it is I work a full-time job, and I'm not a full-time professional landscape photographer, and I don't like the middle ground between the two, um, mm-hmm. where you end up dipping your toe in business and you're selling a little bit. And I'm not saying that isn't a good thing for a lot of people. I think it probably is. But the difficulty I have with it is I look at it as a time cost. So would I rather spend my weekend making some prints for somebody and make a few hundred bucks? That's not a bad thing. Uh, People would probably derive joy from that. And I guess you have a few hundred dollars extra and the flattery of, having somebody sort of honor your images by putting them on their wall or whatever they're going to do with them. But that also means that I probably couldn't have gone out and made more photographs. So no, never mind the, uh, the
0: additional stress on your shoulders of disappointing your customer. <laughs>
1: well, hopefully not. But <laughs> I guess I'll, uh, I'll leave that to you, <laughs> but hopefully not.
0: Well, but I'm just saying you don't have to worry about that.
1: No, that's, that's true. I mean, if, if that's a concern, um, I guess I haven't thought about that too much. I guess my view is if they're reaching out, they were clearly attracted to the image. And I don't know about how how your prints are. For me, I guess I feel my prints are much better than my online images. Mm -hmm. So I I don't see that as being too much of a, a stumbling block. But I guess I've tried to be strategic about where I've allocated time and then looking at things in the sense of playing a long game um, do I want to delve into business right now? Is that important? I don't know. It would be for some people that's cool. Or do I want to continue to de- develop my own work, create bodies of work while I'm younger, healthier, have more energy, and then leave that possibility open for the future. I'm not saying I would never sell work. I think the time probably will come. Uh, but you know, you reach a point where it starts getting, you start feeling rude for turning people down. But
0: <laughs> yeah, I true. do. Get, that, I
1: do give prints to friends and family. Uh, is that
0: don't. an is that an experience you've had? Is where people are like, "I want to buy your photo," and you're like, "I don't sell it."
1: Yeah, yeah, it is, and it's uh, <laughs> it's a little awkward. <laughs> but uh, usually, you you just kind of explain that you don't, and you know, apologize, and that's it. You know, it's not like they're. I guess I've had one person kind of berate me for it, but really yeah that was uh that was some time ago so water under the bridge but
0: i can't remember what tv show i was watching but i remember there was like this artist painter this artist Mm -hmm. and and, like they refused to sell (laughs) their paintings and like it frustrated everyone
1: (laughs) yeah so i I don't know i it's not like it's some uh judgment against other people who do it or anything like that. It's just a choice I've made in the near term. And uh, my view being that I need to develop myself first and that that aspect can come later should Uh. the demand be there. And, you know, uh, I would rather do it later in life than earlier, just given kind of where I'm at with things and just personal choice.
0: No, I I like that approach. I mean it simplifies things to a large degree and it also and it gives you the ability to focus on what you personally are wanting to put your energy into.
1: Yeah, I I mean I just I only have so much time and it'd be I, I would feel it would be a different scenario if you would sell your work and you would become financially independent and then you could leverage that for more time and more creative time and do more work to me, the measure of success is does it let you actually create more work and if it doesn't then I'm just not as attracted to it and totally. everybody kind of has to figure that out for themselves I mean mm-hmm. I wish everybody the best out there who uh, is part of the struggle and uh, making it happen selling their work that's it's not easy, so hats off to you if you're doing that but
0: uh, do you think that there's kind of an implicit expectation on the part of the public
1: that we should sell our photography? Yeah, definitely. And you're at least <laughs> my my experience has been that uh, people don't get it, why you want. I um, think you're probably half nuts, but <laughs> 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 that probably will be true if uh, of other people who listen to this podcast. But you know, that's that's fine. Like I say, you got to make your own choices and delegate your time where you feel it's meaningful to you. And if you're conscientious about that and not just giving away your time, then by all means have at it, but
0: um, yeah, yeah, there, there
1: is that expectation though. And, and that expectation exists strongly within, within landscape photographers and within that community. I think mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the community is really geared towards selling services and workshops and, you know, which that's all cool. There's a flood of people coming in, and like I've said earlier, it's it's highly democratic, and there's people coming from all over the place who have no idea what to do with anything. So there's clearly a need for that, and th- there are really good teachers out there too. So hats off to those people who are teaching and making a difference for other people because that's a noble thing, I think.
0: No, It's interesting, though, because I think what you're – some. Some of what you're kind of hinting at here and I don't think you're saying it but it's kind of my interpretation is that uh you know if if you're going to do something and it's going to take up a lot of your time and energy you should probably make sure it's worth it you know
1: like
0: 100%. And I so often we see people selling their work for like very small amounts of profit Yeah. yeah, That's another
1: thing. It's like a race to the bottom, right? In terms of profit. And I, I know it's not easy. And I, like I say, I don't hold that against anybody. It's just kind of the nature of where things currently sit. And, you know, with everybody having camera phones that are very good, um, the value of a lot of photography has dropped. And I don't know, that's, that's tough for a lot of people. I feel bad, honestly.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I I think the value is still there. You just have to. It's a different proposition that I think
1: some people aren't used to trying to make. Yeah, I guess I'm speaking more in terms of prints as a whole.
0: No, I'm. I am too. Um, Okay. I just. uh, I think I was kind of to your point that you know if you're gonna, like for example, I'm kind of starting now. I'm gonna say no to anyone who says, "Can you
1: shoot my wedding?" You know what were, I mean? you do, were you doing weddings prior? To
0: like this? if someone asked me, I'll be like, yeah, I'll do your wedding, you know, but, cool. Cool. I, but I don't super enjoy it. I mean, I've, sure. if it's small and it's people I know, I enjoy it. Mm-hmm. But if it's, you know, people I don't know, I don't, it's, it's a lot of stress. So like, unless someone wants to give me like $20,000, I'm probably not going to be compelled to do it. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. I it's mean, just, I actually worked at a photography studio um, back when I was going to school doing Photoshop and printing work for them. And it was kind of interesting to, you know, because I, I kind of back at that point in my life kind of flirted with the idea maybe this is something I should look into, kind of doing wedding portrait sort of thing. And you could balance that out with your, then your personal creative work. And some people do that. And, uh, you know, but actually running through that gauntlet and seeing what that was about, I mean, it's it's a ton of work, man, doing doing weddings and then creating albums. If you start doing custom albums for people and making all their prints and then you're doing sales work on top of that potentially. And, and there's good profit potentially, I think within it too, but um, it's like it's its own competitive domain and short of you really dedicating yourself to it. Yeah. It'd be hard to jump in and out.
0: Yeah. and if you're going to do something like that, why, why charge you know, a small amount of money for something that's going to completely eat up all of your time, all of your, you know, increase your levels of stress. You know, it's, I guess what I was trying to say is mm-hmm. I like your thought process because it's basically saying, you know, if you're gonna sell your work, you should,
1: it should be worth your time. You yeah. I, I think that's part of just kind of honoring your own effort too, right? Like yes, you've gone in, you've done all this work and it's work we enjoy and it's work I do for free. <laughs> it's work I pay for, I guess. But for me to sell it and then create a separate sort of time sink, so to speak, that I, I just want to be careful with. That's more kind of where I've been. And, you know, the fact that I've been unplugged from being online um, obviously, if people don't know who you are, they're not going to be contacting you for prints, right? So right, right. it really hasn't been an issue since I. Pulled the plug, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it's kind of an interesting topic for sure.
0: Well, you know, you've been shooting for a while. I'm curious if you've ever experienced burnout, and if so, what are your strategies for for trying to deal with it?
1: Yeah, I uh, I, I usually find that after I do a large project, then I it's like I hit a wall, and uh, <laughs> I need to kind of recalibrate and reevaluate everything. So actually, the first time that I had it happen was when I switched to black and white. And I finished, like I kind of mentioned earlier, a a color project. I was almost completely on 4 by 5 color transparency film of a local state park to me and was happy with the results. I, I don't think I could have done anything better given my knowledge and limitations at the time, but mm-hmm. it's like you you exhaust that idea and then... I was pretty empty after it. Like I just, I needed something different. And it was kind of at that point, I did another year in color beyond it and had good results, but I just wasn't into it and started kind of dabbling in black and white at that point. So, And then I ran into it again <laughs> after I finished uh, another project of mine on the north shore of uh, Lake Superior, which was a project I dedicated a little over five years to. Uh, And, you know, it just, it's like I pulled it all out of me and I needed to kind of take a breath and put it back together. So I actually, I guess the the common theme I've found is I need to do something different for a while. And I've heard other people talk about this. I don't think it's anything too groundbreaking, but you just need, at least for me, I needed to just step away, do something different. You know, I actually photographed a year in color then between that project and then carrying on with black and white and some of those color images I then converted to black and black and white in retrospect. But, you know, I just needed something to kind of bring me back to life and get me excited again and changing things up um, is kind of how I found to do that. And maybe that's as much a reflection of sort of being attracted to projects that are long-term committing you're in one place typically or one region um, (laughs) and you're kind of mining that same area for years, oftentimes uh, Mm -hmm. making images. And I don't know if the mind just has enough and it's like, get me out of here. (laughs) But uh, that's, that's kind of what I found. I just need to break away and do something different. Uh, The first time I went to death Valley, I mean, it was partially just from feeling burned out and going somewhere completely different and, it's not like I made a bunch of great photographs in Death Valley, but it did allow me to uh just work within a different different mindset and I don't know, it's uh kind of interesting how the brain can then readjust and then suddenly it's excited again about going back and doing something local or whatever that means. So
0: yeah, it's almost um if you if you're able to switch either like the season or the type of gear or yeah, um, or the, the subject, you know, like what I love about where I live is, you know, half the year I can engage with mountains and forests. And then the other half of the year I can engage with deserts.
1: And so it's, it's a nice, do you find in Colorado where you're at, do you find that more compelling to photograph now, less compelling? Are you still as interested in it or has your interest just evolved? What does that look like for you?
0: Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. What I have found is I'm less uh easily excited by uh more mundane mountain scenes. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I live in uh the San Juan Mountains, which are pretty spectacular. And after I moved here, I, I did have some other mountains that I needed to climb um in another part of the state. And, you know, every time I went back, I was just not that inspired. You know, it's like, eh, it's, you know, it's pretty, it's nice, um, but it's doesn't compare to what I have in my backyard, you know. It's, uh, and
1: you've climbed all the 14ers at this point, correct?
0: hmm Yeah, okay. I've, I've climbed the highest 100 mountains in Colorado, so. Um,
1: Do you find your photography has kind of evolved beyond being up on those peaks at this point, or where oh. are you kind of at currently? Yeah, for
0: sure, man. It's, um, yeah, it's gonna sound crazy, but that, I mean, that kind of gets old a little bit, you know, you, you start to see. It's a see, lot of work, man. <laughs> well, it's a lot of work, but it's also yeah. like how many amazing mountain scenes can you
1: photograph before it all starts kind of looking the same? That be um, the challenge. Like how do you, because you have individual Peaks and mountains that are notable, right? Like, sure. how do you give a voice to each one of those and right. have them be distinct? That, that's it's tricky.
0: It, yeah, it's very tricky, and you know, I think um, that's what I love about where I live. Is you know, I'm a couple-hour drive, I can be pretty much anywhere in the Southwest. So, you know, Arizona, Utah. Uh, New Mexico. And there's lots of variety of subjects in those places that yeah, kind of live keeps, in a really
1: rich area. So that's something to be thankful for.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, um, but it keeps the burnout kind of at bay because when I lived in, I hate to say it, but when I lived in Oregon, I was, you know, there's only so many lush green waterfalls that you can <laughs> photograph. And yeah. then, I mean, I know they have the coast, you know, you have the coast and you have
1: no Oregon's amazing.
0: Oregon's. A, yeah. It's an incredible place, but, um, uh, I don't know. I, I find where I live. I mean, if I I feel like if I lived like deeper in Colorado, I probably would be bored. You know, it, it's just too um homogenous.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Limited opportunities within a small radius.
0: Yeah, so it's um well, either that or I probably would have taken up more macro work or something like that, you know, just sure. something to keep
1: me Diversifying.
0: Yeah, exactly. So I think what you're describing is important in terms of switching it up in some way
1: (laughs) yeah right
0: i I know a lot of people that take up like painting or music or you know trying to i think that i hate to say but i think that's why a lot of people try to take up like vlogging and stuff it's like oh video there's like this whole other
1: world that i can whatever keeps you in the game that's you know yeah whatever can
0: keep your brain engaged i think is important yeah 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 cool (laughs) all right joel well so who would you recommend for the podcast
1: all right, so I have I have 3 people here. Um the first one is a gentleman named uh, Jim Bessia. Sorry Jim if I'm mispronouncing your last name. He's a uh, large format photographer from Wisconsin and he shoots 8x10 color primarily. His work is kind of in the same vein as like Charlie Kramer or Christopher Burkett or even like Ben Horn a little bit. Mm-hmm. But he works out in the west quite a bit. Uh but you know, it's just his compositions are just pristine and they're just tight and, you know, really spot on and beautiful use of light. And they're just very, very well done. And uh, I definitely would encourage anybody to go look at what he's doing. Uh, I believe his website is spirit light photography. If you okay. Um, yeah. Just really a good photographer. Uh, another person I have written down is uh, a gal named Michelle Sons, and she's a photographer out in Appalachia and I, I I think I kind of resonate with her work because she works with a lot of fog, which I'm uh, just a total sucker for. Yeah. And it tends to be kind of delicate and ethereal and moody. And I really like that. And she just has a really nice graceful kind of touch with her processing. And, Mm. you know, it's not heavy handed. It's there's kind of a lightness to it, which I really like. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, good stuff. And then, the final person I have is a Minnesota photographer named Benjamin Olson. And Benjamin is, uh, he's somebody I know, and but just a really good photographer. And I, I think what's especially compelling about him is he is just kind of like this multidisciplinary nature photographer, um, almost more along the lines of kind of some of the more classical Nat Geo kind of guys where he does incredible wildlife work. He's very competent at landscape, good landscape work, and he does really good macro work as well. And I kind of view him as carrying on the legacy of uh, photographer Jim Brandenburg. I don't know if you know who that is. He's a National Geographic photographer who lives in northern Minnesota and did a lot of work with wolves and uh, pretty well-known internationally. But um, yeah, Ben is is just doing some great stuff too, and I think you... I. Trying to remember what his website is, but if you search for Benjamin Olson, it's S O N um, for Olson, um, should pull him up. So cool! No, those are those are great, um, and
0: I don't think anyone else has ever recommended any of those people. So that's awesome. Cool, awesome Joel. Well, this has been a lot of fun, and again, thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule. And I feel like we had a really great conversation.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Of course. Of course.
0: Well, thanks again to Joel for joining me on the podcast today. Please do check out his photography by visiting his website at joeltruckenbrode.com. You can also check out the show notes for a link to the article I did in On Landscape Magazine on him and his photography. I wanted to also remind listeners that our newly created landscape and nature photography competition, the Natural Landscape Photography Awards, will begin accepting submissions on June 1st. We are beyond excited to level the playing field for nature and landscape photographers who choose to present scenes that are more true to what was actually experienced. Our goal is to celebrate this style of nature and landscape photography and to reward photographers who present their work in this way. We also are looking forward to producing an incredibly high quality fine art book along the lines of what you saw from Wayne Suggs, filled with fabulous images and great storytelling. We can only make these things possible if you help us out by submitting your images. The more photos entered, the better, as it will really help us determine the best of the best. Since this is our first year, we understand some may think the fees are a little bit higher than what they should be, While we can appreciate that, we really needed to be sure that in the first year that this project would get off the ground, and we hope to reevaluate everything in year two. If you too value this style of photography and want to see it elevated to a higher status, please help us by by either sharing the competition with your friends or by entering your images. Visit naturallandscapeawards.com to learn more. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in collaborating with us and listening. See you next week.